All right, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 3? That's where we're going to take our text from, the first six verses, chapter 3. First six verses, and we'll read those in a moment. As you're turning there, I'll give you a second to get there, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again just for the opportunity to come before you to uh, share your holy word. And Father, we ask that you would speak to each and every heart that is here, Lord, about, uh, about the church and the condition of the church. And Father, that we would search our own hearts individually and see what the Spirit would say to us this day. We pray, God, that you're glorified in the preaching that you would take your word and by your spirit that you would make it alive and the lives would be changed in the process. We pray that for your namesake and for your glory in Christ Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we'll read again here in just a moment. But just as uh, by way of introduction, as I was preparing this message there was a scripture that came to mind other than the text, and that's Proverbs 22.1. And this proverb says this, quote, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. In essence, what is being said is that a good reputation and having favor is an important thing. In fact, it outweighs worldly riches. It's going to be very important for the message to the church of Sardis because that's what the Lord was really addressing to this church. The church of Sardis had a reputation for being a church that was alive. However, we're going to see from our text this morning that it was a false reputation and the one who sees and knows all calls them out for it. We as a church really should look closely what is written and listen intently to what the Spirit is saying. And as usual, we're going to look at who the letter is from, who it is to, and what should be the response of the letter. Now, you will remember so far that we've covered the church of Ephesus. We have covered the church of Smyrna. We've covered the church of Pergamos. Now we're going to look at the church of Sardis, and then we'll have two others, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. And each one of these churches could represent a different church age down through history. It also has a church that each one of the churches we're speaking to have been existent in every single culture, including ours today. As a matter of fact, I would say this church really fits a lot of the American church today. Uh, in particular, not only just the American church, I guess worldwide, because we'll go through and uh, kind of dissect those things. But let's read the scripture together, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And the angel of the Lord, or pardon me, and the angel, and unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come to thee as a thief, 
and thou shalt not know what hour I shall come upon thee. Thou hast a few even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in a white raiment, and I will not blot out his name of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And we ask that the Lord would add the blessing to the reading of his word. All right, so first thing we say is who is the letter from and who is the letter to? Well, the first thing that we see in verse 1, it says that this is the from the one who has the seven spirits. And you will remember as we're going along with each one of these uh, descriptions that the Lord chooses is from his introduction in chapter 1. And he chose this time to say, I am the one who has the seven spirits. Now, the, that is a reference to it. Now, we, sometimes we freak out and say, what is all this revelation stuff? And it's, it's just uh, um, covered in, in all sorts of under, un, ununderstandable things. Well, not really. It explains itself. And when he talks about the seven spirits, we simply just go back to find where the seven spirits are mentioned before. It mentions it in the first chapter, and it also is comes from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, and we're not going to turn there this morning to look at that, but in that you will find a description of Christ and the seven spirits, one being wisdom, understanding, uh, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of, you know, uh, this goes on and lists five different attributes about that spirit, but what this is, is simply an idiom for the Holy Spirit. And, and so when he introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits, it is Christ who was in the midst of the church, and he is there by his Holy Spirit. So check this out, right? We know that Christ was risen from the dead, right? Has been raised up from the dead in a literal physical body. Therefore, where is he at? He is at the right hand of the Father, which is in heaven. How is he represented in the church today? By the Holy Spirit. Right? And the Holy Spirit that indwells every single believer, but the Spirit of God that is in the church today. Now that is important that you hang on to that idea because he introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits who is represented in the church today. He goes on to say that he holds the seven stars in his hand. Now you will remember when we did the introduction of that, that the seven stars there are a picture of the seven messengers to the church or uh, to the seven pastors that, the ch that it is written to. Now that ought to be alarming to every single pastor that is out there that when Christ is very aware of what a pastor is doing in a church. Everything that is going on. And so he is saying, when he says, I'm the one who is represented by the Spirit of God in the church. I am the one who controls that idea of holding the pastors in his hand. I am the one who is to control the pastor or pastors inside of the church. He says, I'm the one that is doing that. He's addressing them. So Christ chose the way that he would identify himself in this manner. And here's why for the church of Sardis. Because the church was lacking the very things he identifies himself as. The church of Sardis was a church with a false reputation. 
or repetition, reputation. He, it was a church that, that was, uh, uh, said that they were alive. The world looked and said, man, that's a live church down there. But Christ is addressing them and saying, the very things that you need, you are missing. In other words, you don't have the Holy Spirit in the church, and you don't have a pastor who is being led and controlled by me. Now, that's, that's a scary thought. And I'll tell you why it's really scary, church, is because of this. is because the church thought they were fine. And the world thought they were fine. But the one who says he sees and knows all, the Alpha and the Omega, the omniscient, the omnipresent, the omnipotent God, he says, I see you for how you really are. You have a reputation for being alive, but in fact, you're dead. And the reason that you're dead is because you have blocked out my spirit and you're not being controlled by me. Now let me tell you something, church. That can happen to any church. And it doesn't happen just overnight. There was a group, I think it was Casting Crowns several years ago, that, that wrote a, a song, and it was called The Slow Fade. Right? It doesn't just happen all of a sudden that a church wakes up overnight and they say, you know what, I think we're done. We're done with Christ, we're just going to do this thing on our own. It happens over a period of time, and as we looked in the, in the church of Ephesus, you remember that church was a church that had the right deeds. In other words, they had the right doctrine. They were doing the right things, but they weren't a church that loved. I told you some time ago, a couple of weeks ago, that, that there was a church, I reading about a lady who was saying, uh, wrote about her church and said that, hey, we're a church that is solid on doctrine. We're an old, you know, we're an older church. We got a lot of gray hair people in here, and that's just the way we want it. Can I tell you what? That was the church of Ephesus, that attitude. Because I'm satisfied with just what we have. We don't want a bunch of people coming in here disrupting our way of life. That's a church that may have their doctrine right, but they don't have any love. And then it moved on, and we talked about, it was this next church called the Church of Smyrna. And you remember that church, Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, and the myrrh was from a plant that was crushed, and it would give a fragrance, and that, that crushing would then, that create, uh, uh, crushed fragrance would, would make an ointment, and they would use that uh, to cover bodies who were dead, and they used it as a fragrance for living. But it was the idea, it was the persecuted church, crushed. And you remember the Lord said, I don't have anything bad to say about you. Just hang on to what you have. Just keep going. And, and then we got to the church of Pergamos. You remember that was the church that had married the world. In other words, they said, hey, you know what? Whatever the world is doing, however the world wants it, that's the way we want the church to be. That's what draws people in. Do it the world's way. And we see that stuff going on left and right. Amen. Something that happened back then, too. That they married into the world. Then we get around to Sardis. We talked about, pardon me, Thyatira. We got to the point that it was allowing false doctrine, right? Pergamos had started to allow some of that, and now Thyatira not only allows false doctrine, they celebrate it. No one, no one will confront it at all. And by the time now, you see, that's what happens, this slow fade. You begin to compromise a little, and I compromise a little bit more, and pretty soon you're accepting what is wrong and what is false. Amen. Sure. And that is where the church of Sardis was at. 
because they had completely accepted just the slow fade, the compromise. He says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I am the one who has the seven spirits. And this church was lacking those things. Well, who is it written to? Well, first of all, it says unto the angel. It's written to the pastor. Can I tell you, when I, when I start to study each week and prepare these messages, I take it very seriously that I'm going to come up and I'm going to stand before a group of people, whether it be a large group or a small group, and I'm going to deliver the message that God has given me to, to preach. I have a responsibility for that. Unfortunately, you know, there are pastors in our country and in churches throughout history who have rather would preach about other issues rather than what the Word of God says. And that is the danger that Sardis, not the danger, that is the problem that the church of Sardis had. They had stopped preaching the Word of God. So it's written to that pastor ultimately, but it also goes to the people because the letter was to be written or read amongst all of the churches. So it's written to the church. And to understand the church, it is helpful to understand the history of the city in which the church operated. Let me give you a little bit of background on the city of Sardis. Sardis had at one time been a city that was reputed for being rich with gold and silver. How many of you have heard of the saying, uh, the Midas touch? Right? You remember King Midas? Everything that he touched would turn to gold. Did you know that Midas was from Sardis? That, that's where that saying originally came from, to have the Midas touch. Uh, it, was, it was said there that you could, you could go and take a, a bath in the river and that you would come out with gold all over you. It was, was just a rich, rich, rich area. Now keep in mind, right, the Lord is saying to them, you have a false reputation. You have a reputation of being rich. So the city had a reputation at one time as being a very rich city. Uh, there, uh, I had never heard the saying, maybe you have richest creases. Have you ever heard of that saying? Anybody here? I guess we're an uneducated bunch. So, but there was, there was a saying that you're richest creases. Now, Croesus was one of the kings of Sardis. And we'll talk a little bit more about him a little bit further down the road. Sardis was known to be a city of educated people and enlightened people. How many of you have heard of Aesop's fables? Well, that's where, that's where Aesop's fables came from, from the city of Sardis. And so, so here's a city that is rich. It, it is an enlightened city. It is known for being an impregnable city. It was a city that sat atop of a 1,000 a thousand to 1,500 foot uh, mountain. And there was only one way that you could approach. All three sides, three other sides, were cliffs going up, Right? And so it gave them the, the sense that, hey, we're in a safe place. Nothing can touch us because there's only one way that can be attacked. And all we have to do is defend this one area. As a matter of fact, though, the city of Sardis was captured five different times. Isn't that amazing? A people that think that they're un cannot be captured, who think that they're so great, ultimately are captured five different times. As a matter of fact, Sardis ultimately became known as a city for its failure. 
rather than its greatness. Dr. Missler has said the name of Sardis became synonymous with, quote, promise without performance, appearance without reality, a false confidence that heralded ruin. He goes on to say that the city betrayed themselves by a lack, listen, by a lack of watchfulness and diligence. And that was a fact that pictured the church of Sardis. They were a church that had become lax in being watchful and diligent. So who was the letter really written to? Let me, let me back up a little bit on this just to explain that a little bit more. King Croesus, he had gone to fight against King Cyrus, right? And you know Cyrus is out of the Old Testament, right? So they had a battle. They got whipped really bad. They came back to Sardis. They went into their city. The king felt so secure in the city that he just went to sleep, saying, even though Cyrus's army had pursued them, and they said, um, we're good. Everybody can rest. They can't attack us here. And what happened, according to legend, is they were watching, and Cyrus has said, any man that can figure out a way to, to, to attack this city is going to be paid a great amount, and I'm paraphrasing everything just for the sake of time. But they had watched one of the soldiers of Sardis and his helmet had dropped over the side of the cliff. And they watched the guy crawl over the wall, scaled down, got his helmet and went back up. And the guy who said it said, if that guy can scale that, we can too. And so basically, at night, that foreign army climbed up the top of the, the cliffs, went over the walls, and took the city because they were not watchful of that area. And you see, that's exactly what had happened to the church of Sardis. They were secure in where they were at. They thought, we're good, no problem. We can just sit back and rest and not be watchful and not be diligent. What was written to them? What was written to them? Well, in this letter, you really do not find any commendation for the church. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? Usually, in, in all these letters, the Lord finds at least something good to say about them. But in this particular church, he doesn't find anything good to say about them. Now, he will commend uh, some of the Christians that are in that church, that there evidently are some believers who are still hanging on slightly. Those, it says, who have not soiled their clothes. But what is written, he says this, is he does all of the churches, I know your deeds. He knows their works. And here's what he says about their works. He says, you have a label, you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. And when it comes to the church, it really does not matter what the world thinks of the church. All that matters is what Christ thinks of the church. Amen. You, you see, we've moved into an era that we are more concerned with how the world views us than how Christ views us. And, and can I tell you that in, in the end, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, can I, when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It really matters what Christ thinks of you. Amen. And the church is more concerned as saying, well, will we be accepted by the world? Can I give you the answer to that? No, you never will. Not if you stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we need to be out looking for a fight with somebody. Man, that's, that's what's wrong, I think, with a lot of God's people is they have the right doctrine, but they go back to the church of Ephesus, but they don't have any love. And, and if we're out, you know, like, you know, spewing spit and veins are bulging in our head, you know, telling how people how terrible they are, and, and without telling them how much God loves them, then we have missed much of the point, Right? But at the same time, we can't just sit around and say, love, love, love. Because there is a God who says it goes beyond that, and there's a day for judgment. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Let me tell you just a few things that will cause a church to die. If a church is content to rest in the past, that church will die. Amen. If a church is, is willing just to sit back and say, well, you know, we, we did it all right at one time, and they're not constantly vigilant and, and being watchful for what is going on around them, that church is doomed to die. You see, the culture around us is changing, and we change with the culture, not in the message, but we have to approach the culture as it is. More of a concern over tradition than the controlling of the Holy Spirit. You know, in, 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 in our circles, especially as Baptists, now listen, I'm, I'm not going to go all charismatic on you, but I'm going to tell you this. We get so paranoid about the Holy Spirit sometimes that we're afraid to let the Spirit have any movement at all. Instead of realizing, listen, we're serving a supernatural God who does supernatural things. You remember the studying this morning in our Sunday school classes? It, this God that we're serving is the same God who parted the Red Sea. Amen. Now, I don't think that we run around looking for miracles because Jesus said that's a wicked and sinful generation that's always looking for a sign. Amen. But we do need to understand that this very God is the same one who did that. The sovereignty of God in that. Did you grab that out of your lesson this morning? That to the very day he brought, Egypt, or brought Israel out of Egypt, as he has promised 400 years earlier? To the very day. Listen, I'm not worried about coronavirus in the long run. Because I can trust in the sovereignty and the providence of an almighty God. Now, what else will cause it? Concern over material rather than the spiritual. Church numbers over spiritual growth. Now, let, let me add a caveat to that. I will say this, that if a church is not growing, there's a problem the church is not growing. Amen. Let me repeat that. If a church is not growing, there needs to be an understanding of why that church is not growing. Amen. Because a healthy church will grow. Otherwise, we, we get to that point of saying, oh, we can, we're good, we can just rest. Because we're surrounded on three sides and we know that nothing can get to us. We can just watch this front door and we're okay. You see, a church that does that, it's going to die. Concern over the, let's say, the material rather than the spiritual. Concerned about how things look. Concerned about, uh, you know, uh, what, what does the community think. More fear of man. Then of God, going back to Chuck Messler again, and he says, you know, the church began with house churches, and he says, I believe it will end with house churches. 
C.S. Lewis had said that he believed, and I think he is right, and I've said it many times myself, that the greatest persecution of the church of our day will come from the alleged church, the established church, Amen. the denominational church. Loss of hearing and doing the word of God. That's really where this church was at. They had stopped preaching, teaching, and living out the word of God. Now, now let me just say this again. It is important. It is important that you and I simply don't just hear the word of God. You and I need to do the word of God. And especially right now, folks, we're looking, at, we're looking at people who are panicking over things. My goodness, I went to buy some coffee, and, and there were people with cartloads of toilet paper. And it's like, what? And I, I mean, you know, somebody told me today that they, 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 somebody was pushing a cart, and they heard something behind them, and a lady was pulling her toilet paper out of her, her cart to put it in, her, in another lady's cart. And it's like, folks... Toilet paper is the least of your problems. The problem is this, is that men are selfish and sinful and they need a Savior. That's the problem. And so when people are, I heard somebody say, it's so good this, this week, they said people were worried about, you know, washing their hands. And I'm like, you know, I'm doing the same thing. I'm washing my hands. I'm trying to be smart about things, you know, uh, I got a mustache and I'm constantly doing this, so I know that if I shook hands and you have the coronavirus, I probably have it now. Hey, no big deal, but here's something that we need. We need to think less about telling people to wash their hands to get the germs off of them, and we need to talk to them about washing their hands to get rid of the guilt off of them, and that guilt is sin, and the only answer is Christ. You see, God has afforded us an awesome opportunity here to be a light and not to run around and panic. Amen. Again, God's people need to be the ones who are right. running to this, not running from it. Amen. Let me say again, everybody in this room is going to die. Amen. And how we choose to do that in honoring Christ is what is important. Amen. What will you do with your life? What will we as a church do? What reputation will we have as a people? That's what's important. The church, yeah, they had works. They were just not the works that Christ viewed as essential for life. He says their works were not complete before God. That would be a terrible thing. Think of that individually. Because how we handle things individually is really how we handle things corporately. How do, we, how do we view those things? What should be the response to the message? How should we handle it? How did this church need to respond to that? Well, in the response, there were three groups that really needed to respond. There were those who were asleep. Those who were losing what they have. And then there were those who were encouraged to carry on with what they had, which was salvation into eternity. Let's just cover a couple of those, or all three of those, rather. There are some people that simply need to wake up. 
You see, there are people in churches today, and I believe it needs to start in the churches of, with leadership. They need to wake up and understand what the church is to be. The church, let, let me say this again, folks. The church is not a building. The church is not a denomination. The church are the called out ones. And you are called out of this world to go into a world and make known the name of Jesus Christ. And when the church loses that concept, it has begun already on the slow fade to where they will eventually die out. I was talking to Steve earlier about the potentials of pastorates, and he was bringing one up, and I don't want to go into detail on any of that, but to simply say that, you know, sometimes there are churches, and I think you said it right, they, I said that they need to go away, and, and Steve said, or they just need to go and be a part of another church. You see, there are some churches that have either left their first love, some who have compromised the world, some who have allowed so much false doctrine in, and they get to the point like this church of Sardis that they've lost their way completely. They may have a reputation with the outside world saying, man, look at what that church is doing. Man, there are people there. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at that church. Can I tell you what? And, and man, I'll, I'll tell you, folks, I, I want to see the church full. Right? And I understand today a lot of people are gone because of this, this sickness. Got it? But I can tell you this as your pastor, when I come every single Sunday and see that we have the same old crowd with the same old crowd, I'm asking myself, what's the problem? Can I get an amen? amen. You see, the, the danger is, is to be like the church of Sardis and say, hey, we're secure on three sides, no big deal. And the Lord says, you may have a reputation, but it's one that you have a false reputation. And the people that really needed to hear the message was not the world. The church, the church is the one that needed to hear the message that Christ says, you have a reputation of being alive, but in fact, you're dead. You see, he wasn't concerned about all the cool things that the church was doing. He wanted them to have the right message. He wanted that group to wake up and then it says that there's that group that they were close to losing what they have. They, they had some teaching there. They had some knowledge there. And he says, listen, you need to grab hold of that and make that the main thing. I like what Alistair Begg says. We make the, the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. Right? Just stick to the Word of God. Quit trying to, I mean, listen, church is not, it, it, I heard some guy, I'll just use it for youth, and I'll tell Michael Harvey this, listen, you know, developing a youth ministry is not making a, a chocolate sundae in a trough where a bunch of kids come and eat out of it. That's not ministry. Ministry is getting the word of God in them. Same thing, though, for churches, because they do the same thing on an adult level. We'll bring so much entertainment into the church that it makes it appealing for the world to come. And the Word of God is left out. And that church is dead, even though they have a reputation of being alive. 
I'm amazed at how people will flock to those things. I've, I've heard of churches that are got people dressed up in Ninja Turtle suits passing out popcorn. I mean, I'm, I'm just, to me, I mean, those things, I, I, and this is years ago, I heard that where they brought a wrestling rink in and set it up and, and had the pastor jumping off the top rope, you know, elbowing, you know, some professional, I'm saying, that is what the church of Sardis was. To where they were entertaining the world rather than taking the world to Christ to show them of their guilt and the need for a Savior. He says, be careful. You may have a reputation, but it's not one that's a reputation with me. He says this, that they need to be watchful, strengthen what remains. Let me just give you this story I heard Dr. MacArthur relate. He was in Scotland, and I don't know if it's the Church of Scotland, what it was, so I'll be careful how I say it, but they had gotten to the point, and we know the issue over, and, and all of us here, we have to be careful of this too, that when it comes to the point that we're, that we're ordaining same-sex marriage and saying that it's okay, and we're even ordaining same-sex relationships inside of the church and saying pastors, and, and everybody's going, and you see, that's what had happened to the Church of Scotland, and they got to the point, and they say, and we're going to split we're leaving the church because it finally got to this point. And Dr. MacArthur made a great observation. And he says, you know, what had happened, it did, that did not happen overnight. You see, it began when that church began to doubt that the word of God was inerrant and it was the authority for life. And then it moved to the point of saying, well, Jesus is simply not the way, he is a way. And then it finally got to the point of when it says, who are you to judge me because there's nothing here to stand on? And they finally got to the point and say, well, we're out. Listen, the point it should have been is that church, those people should have said when it came to the authority of the word of God saying, here I stand and I will move no further. Amen. Because without the word of God, we've got nothing. It is the standard. And you say, Wow. Can I tell you that's happening in denomination after denomination here in the United States? As a matter of fact, Ann and I listen to, you know, over our, our you know, brothers and sisters that, that we do have in the Methodist Church. Did you know there are Christians in the Methodist Church? You know, because sometimes we as Baptists like to think that we're the only ones. But the fact is, is that they've come to a point that they're, they're literally splitting over this very issue. And can I tell you what? The problem with the Methodist, it was the same problem that the Scottish church had is they begin to doubt the authenticity and the authority and the inerrancy of the word of God. Amen. And by the way, can I tell you that's happening in the Baptist church as well. Amen. When a church begins to doubt that, that's why the Lord says, strengthen what you have. Get back to what you know is true. Strengthen that. Remember and repent. The church is to be a light to show men to Christ, not an institution to fix the social ills of our country or our society. Amen. I've had many discussions with some young Christians, and they are getting caught up in, into the social gospel, the social justice gospel. We need to fix all the problems. 
we need to repent for the sins of everybody else. No, no, no. Let me tell you what. Every man, the Bible says, every man is accountable for his own sin. What we need to do is take men and women to the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, you need to repent and have the right attitude. And we as a people, and I will say this, can I just, just be really bold here? And I don't think it's bold in our day. That if you have a problem with the color of somebody's skin, your problem is not a skin thing, it is a sin thing. Amen. And I'm quoting Dr. Tony Evans on that. Amen. I remember him saying that years ago and it just stuck with me. Because it all gets back to the creator that he made one man and one woman. And we all came from that people. And when you slide another person, you're sliding the very God who created them. But see, the issue is not the color of somebody's skin. The issue is that all men are separated from God except through Christ. That's the issue. That's the responsibility of the church. That's what the church is to, to work on. Do we want to take care of the poor? Yes, we're commanded to take care of the poor. But listen, Jesus said the poor you will have with you always. You're not going to fix that. You're not going to fix racism. You're not going to fix you know, poverty. You're not going to fix corrupt government. And the reason you're not going to fix that is because it is a corrupt, broken, sinful world brought on by Adam's dis, uh, his, his disbelief of what God had said and his rebellion. Amen. And the only cure is Christ. Amen. Failure to repent is failure to bring, or is going to bring the sure judgment of Christ to that church. Jesus said, he says, I'm going to come to you. And note how his word play, he says, I'm going to come as a thief. In other words, just like Sardis under uh, King Croesus laid and says, hey, we're secure at night, just rest. They can't attack us. He says, just like that, I'm going to come like a thief, and I'm going to take you out. Now let me close with this. He says, be encouraged. Be encouraged if you're a true believer. He says, what, what got me in this is, even there are some in Sardis. Even in Sardis, there's some who haven't soiled their clothes. In other words, there were, there were some Christians in that church. And he says, I want to encourage you. He says that one day you're going to be clothed with me in white. White is always that symbol of purity, cleanness. There's going to be a day, he says, that you will walk with me in purity and in holiness and righteousness. And he goes on to say, and I will not blot out your name of the book of life. Amen. Now, please don't take that to mean that you can lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation if you are a believer. Amen. What the Lord is talking, and, and let me just give you a little bit of historical background. So in a city, just even in this city, what could happen is if that person died, or if that person had committed some type of heinous crime, then they had the right to remove that person's name out of that book that they belonged to that city. And Jesus is saying that that group of people, no matter what, no matter what, I will not remove your name. It's not a threat to the believer. It's a promise to the believer that your name is written in the book of life. Now, let me just close with this serious closing. There's going to be a book of life. 
And as we get to the end of Revelation, you'll find out that there are going to be books. And the Bible says this, that you open up the book, and if your name is written in the book of life, you're secure. You're going to be with him in all eternity. But if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, the books were opened. And every single thought, every single word, every single action that you have ever committed will be judged by Jesus Christ. And the penalty is eternal separation from him. Torment is what the Bible says. Now you think about that, whether you actually said it or did it, even if you just thought it, that is heaped on your sentence. It's not a good place to be. I'd much rather be in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here's the thing for us as a church. Be watchful. Be diligent. Stick to the Word of God. Make it the main thing of your life. And again, let me just close with this final thought. The Bible says you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. And everybody always thinks that's, you know, like, you know, cursing. There are other scriptures that deal with that. Here's what to take the name of the Lord God, taking his name in vain is, is to claim his name and yet live contrary to it. It's taking his name in a useless way. And we would do well to live what we believe. Because failure to do that is to take his name in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the crowd that is here. We pray for those who are not able to be here this morning, God, that we pray just your comfort. We pray too this morning, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that we'd be a church who would follow you. Lord, that we would obey you, that we would love people, that we would love you. And we know that just loving you and loving others sums up the entire law. So we give you praise this morning and we pray that by your spirit you would do the things that you're able to do that no man is able to do. And God, we are grateful that that is the case because you are the one who receives glory out of it. In Christ's name, amen.